Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's uh, open our Bibles together, please, to the book of Romans. It's been a few Sundays since we said that. In fact, we've taken about a month off of our verse-by-verse study of Romans. Remember, it was uh, Easter season. And then the last two Sundays, Brother Tony has taught us so well from John chapter 17. And I don't know about you, but I was fed and blessed by Brother Tony's messages and so thankful for all of our staff. Uh, Lord willing, we have today's message and three more, and we'll conclude our nearly two-year study of the book of Romans. Today we come to the last section of the book which are Paul's personal greetings. In fact, the title of the message is Paul Gets Personal. And we begin in verse 14 here in chapter 15. Let's read it now. Paul writes, and concerning you my brethren. Now that's a term of endearment. Paul has written some very difficult things but he wants all these believers in Rome to know he thinks of them as family. He says, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about about as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this his word. Now, if you've ever had the responsibility of leading a group of people in any capacity, you know that leadership is more of an art than a science. And what I mean by that is that there is no leadership recipe that if followed perfectly guarantees favorable results. Though I will warn you, if you go to a local bookstore, you'll find shelves full of books claiming to do so. The reason is a couple of reasons. One is that people are much more complex than to be reduced to a recipe. They have varying needs, personalities, backgrounds. Some are motivated by reward and some are motivated by rebuke. Likewise, leaders have varying styles and personalities and No one particular style of personality in one leader is guaranteed to be reproduced in another with favorable results. But I suppose if we could describe the Apostle Paul's leadership style as an apostle, it would be straightforward and bold. He was not one to mince words. He was confident, though not arrogant. Now there are a few places in the New Testament where we see into Paul's personal side. I suppose the clearest example of this is in the book of Acts. Let's turn there, can we? Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Paul is on his way to Rome, though he doesn't know it yet. 
He's to stop off in Jerusalem where he'll be arrested, and that eventually gets him to Rome. But he stops off in the port city of Miletus. He's traveling by ship. And he realizes he's somewhat close to some of his friends in the region of Ephesus. And so he sends for them that they might have a meeting. Verse 17 says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Somehow, supernaturally, God had revealed to Paul that this would be the last time he'd see these dear people this side of heaven. So he wants to give them last instructions. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The King James there says the whole counsel of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased by his own blood. And he goes on to give instructions to these pastors that he has personally trained. Now skip on to verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed for them all. And they began to weep aloud and they embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they should not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. And does that sound like the stereotypical picture we have of Paul? This hard-nosed, stiff, erudite nerd. <laughs> he wasn't. He was a loving shepherd. And, and he, we get a peep, piece of that here. He loved these people and they loved him. They, they don't want to let him go. They walk with him all the way back to the ship. I think there's another place where we see the personal side of Paul. It's in our text today. Let's go back there. Romans 15. We've made this nearly two year journey through Romans. And if you've been here for all of the messages, I think you would agree with me. This isn't light reading. Far from it. Paul began by bringing charges against every human on planet earth as a courtroom attorney. Jews, Gentiles, moral people, licentious people. All of us are put in the same category as guilty sinners condemned under the just wrath of God. And from there he launches into a long and complicated explanation of the doctrine of justification by faith. Then he takes three chapters to explain God's relationship with Israel and his future plan for them. And he concluded in chapters 14 and 15 with instructions of how strong, excuse me, strong and weak Christians are to get along in the church. And if you've ever tried to sit down in your lazy boy and read the entire book of Romans in one sitting, it's an almost in, difficult and impossible task. It is so weighty. 
It is so thick doctrinally that, that I don't think I've ever been able to read it in one sitting, though it's only 16 chapters long. And here's what these verses in chapter, 15, chapter 15 reveal. Paul understands this. He knows he's written some hard and weighty and bold things. And he's going to explain why beginning in 14. And he does so with a commendation. I think too many times in the church we withhold commendations for fear that we're going to inflate someone's ego. There are times where it is right and appropriate to tell someone, good job and well done. If you're familiar with the three, first three chapters of the book of Revelation, for example, through the Apostle John, the Lord Jesus gives seven messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And in many of those messages, he commends them for doing some things well. In some of them, he rebukes them for doing some things wrong. And in some of them, there's a mixture of commendation and rebuke. So Paul says here in verse 14, you're doing some things right, Romans. Look at it. He says, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Now you have to remember that Paul has never met these people in person. He knows them through reputation, through messages that he's received from Christians that he knows there. He's expressed a desire to travel to Rome, but he has not yet accomplished that. And so this message is coming from a stranger. He's letting them know that he did not write this bold and difficult letter because he has a negative perception of them or thinks them especially sinful. In fact, quite the opposite. He says, I am convinced of three things about you Christians there in Rome. Number one, you're full of goodness. Now that's a pretty generic thing to say. What's he mean? It means they have practical righteousness. That is, they practice what they preach. This is one of the fruit of the Spirit we see in the book of Galatians. It does not mean perfect. It means that the trajectory of their lives is towards right behavior, towards God, towards one another, and towards the lost. Secondly, he says, not only are you good, you are filled with knowledge. That is, you're not biblically illiterate. You're not ignorant of the Scriptures. You have been taught well. And thirdly, he says, you're able to admonish one another. You are mature enough to handle problems that arise in the church. I don't have to be there like a mother hen, he's saying, to handle every little thing because you are, what it really says, competent to counsel. In 1979, a man by the name of Jay Adams wrote a book called Competent to Counsel that many of you have read. And it really was the handbook of what we know today as the genre of newthetic counseling. Whereas you counsel someone through their problems using scripture. And Adams asserted, and I believe him to be right, that any Christian who studies the Bible and is prayerful can be used of God to help another Christian through their problems. That you're not required to have a degree, though that might be helpful. It's not required. And it's taken from this verse. Paul says, I believe you are competent to counsel one another. And as I read that this week, I thought, man, that's our church. I mean, really. I'm asked all the time at meetings and conferences by my pastor friends to describe our church to them. And really, this is the same description I use. You're full of goodness. 
You love one another. You take care of one another in your times of need. And you're filled with knowledge. We can preach for two years through Romans because you can handle it. And you're competent to counsel. I didn't say you're perfect. Okay? I know you're not because I'm one of you. But like the church at Rome, there's always room for improvement, isn't there? But that's his commendation, those three truths. Now, he's not flattering them. He's not buttering them up. He's just saying, here's why I can speak so boldly to you, because I know these three things. Next, then, we see Paul's defense of his boldness, beginning in verse 15. He says, but even though you're great, I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. Now, that's an important phrase. You might ought to underline it. To remind you again. That's about 98% of what preaching is. He just said they're full of knowledge. These aren't new principles to them. They've been well taught and established. But Paul knows something that every preacher knows about his congregation because he knows it about himself. We forget, don't we? We need to be reminded of the same truths over and over. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, which says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. I remember being a 22-year-old pastor, and I looked at my bookshelf, and it was nearly empty. I didn't have a library. I had zero experience. I had less than zero creativity. And I was called to pastor a church, and they wanted me to preach three different sermons a week. Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. I've never been more prayerful in all of my life. <laughs> and really, it was a weight upon me. How can I, an ignorant, inexperienced 22-year-old, feed these people? And I was reading my Bible one morning. I came to 2 Peter 1. And here's Peter, by that time a seasoned, older preacher. And he said, all I do is tell you what you already know. I just remind you. And I looked at my Bible, and I looked at the number of pages, and it was 1,267 pages. I've got 1,267 pages in tiny font. I've got plenty of material. I just need to study it. And I need to preach the same things you've been hearing all of your life. And it was like a 500-pound gorilla jumped off of my back. And for the next five years, those people graciously came to hear this inexperienced, ignorant preacher learn the Bible with them. And you know what? That's all I've done here for 23 years. We preach the Word, and you come back, and we remind you of what you already know. This is biblical. That's, Paul says that's all he does. Now, why would Paul do this? He explains himself. He says, because of the grace that was given to me from God. Now, the word grace in the New Testament simply means gift. Anywhere you see the word grace in the Bible, you can write an equal sign and the word gift beside it. Now, there's the grace of salvation. Paul writes in Ephesians, salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. But he's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about why he has boldness to teach. He says, because of a grace given to me by God. What does he mean? Well, verse 16 explains himself. This grace is to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, occasionally, I go to the doctor's office or the dentist, you have to fill out 15 pages application to get your dental work done. And they even ask what you do for a living. 
And I'm confused. I sometimes don't know what to say. Are they going to understand my terminology? I put shepherd and then I erase it. They're not going to believe that. And I usually end up with the word minister. Most people in our culture even today can relate to that. This word translated minister in your English Bibles is a word that everywhere else means priest. Is Paul claiming that he's some sacerdotal priest? He wants people to call him father? No, not at all. He's saying the same thing that Peter did when he says that we're a a royal priesthood. He's saying the same thing that John wrote in Revelation 1-6, that we're a kingdom of priests. He's saying what every Baptist I know believes, the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, that we don't need a mediator. One of the fundamental differences between evangelical Christianity and Roman Catholicism is that we don't believe we need someone else to get us between us and God. Because on the cross, when Christ died, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying that God invites us to come with boldness into His presence and make our needs known. But Paul said his unique calling was to be a minister to the Gentile. And Jesus called him to that, remember, on the road to Damascus. And I think what Paul is saying is that he speaks and writes so boldly because of the confidence he has in his calling. That he's doing exactly what God called him to do. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, he says it this way. He says, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. I don't know what I'd do, he'd say. I'd be cursed if I couldn't preach this way. And he says, like a priest offers offerings day and night to the Lord in the Old Covenant, his offerings were the souls of these Gentiles. Get the picture here. Every time Paul preached to a Gentile and they got saved, this was Paul's ministry to the Lord. He was giving them to the Lord as a gift and evidence of his calling. Speaking of that gospel that Paul preached, what did it look like? Well, thirdly, this was a Christocentric message, meaning that it was Christ-centered and Christ-focused. Look at verse 18. He says, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. Someone has rightly said that no paintbrush ever took credit for producing a masterpiece. That's how Paul viewed himself. He was the paintbrush. God was the master. And through that paintbrush, God accomplished great things. So Paul couldn't boast about what the Lord had accomplished through him. But he also couldn't be quiet about it. See, there's a fine line, isn't there? Because we're here today to celebrate what God is doing among us, but we know when we do that, someone is bound to take that the wrong way. To think, oh, they're up there patting themselves on the back again. They're tooting their own horn. And just as Paul was taken the wrong way, many times, he'd talk about what the Lord was doing through him in saving the Gentiles, and there were his detractors that would say, there he goes again. But Paul is saying, look, as much as I can know my own heart, my desire, my aim, my ambition is to make Christ known among people who don't know Him. Not to celebrate anything I've done, but to give Him the glory. And that's a difficult line to walk. Here's the way I think Paul felt. 
He was willing to risk being misunderstood because if he didn't celebrate what God was doing, he was denying God glory that he deserved. And Paul wouldn't stay silent. In fact, the scripture says, if we don't celebrate what the Lord is doing, the rocks will cry out, right? And so Paul wanted to give praise to the Lord. Now, I think these verses inform us as we want to do the same thing. We see the Lord working through the power of His Spirit here, saving the lost and growing the church. But the last thing we want to do is draw attention to ourselves. So how can we set some fences and parameters and some rules to make sure we don't do it in the wrong way? Well, number one, we have to check our attitude and make sure we're doing what we're doing out of humility. I heard someone say this week, here's a good definition of humility. You steal no credit and you make no exaggeration. You steal no credit and you make no exaggeration. He says, I only say those things which Christ has accomplished in me. And another fence that we can put up is that we're not going to celebrate what God did if He didn't do it. Here's what I mean. There's a temptation in the modern Western church to move the goalpost. What I mean is to water down the gospel so it's less offensive so more people will receive it. And sometimes we water down the gospel and we move the goalpost closer and when we make our field go, we say, look what God did. Well, the truth is maybe He didn't have anything to do with it at all. Paul didn't want to do that, so he preached the gospel with full throat, in full dosage. He preached on sin and judgment and righteousness. How do I know? Because no one will ever be truly saved unless you do. He says here, my preaching resulted in the obedience of the Gentiles in word and deed. Not only did they say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, their lifestyle proved it to be real. There was fruit in their life. And if Paul hadn't preached the full counsel of God, that would not be true. But here's another rule and another fence post. He was dependent upon the Spirit. He said to the church at Corinth, I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God gave the increase. And unless you misconstrue what I'm saying, no one will ever be saved unless the Holy Spirit did it. Now we can be the means, the conduit, the vehicle through which the gospel is proclaimed, but he must convict of sin, judgment, and righteousness. And Paul said in verse 19 that he believed the Spirit was working. He said through signs and wonders. Now I'm a cessationist. What that means is I believe that with the death of the last apostle, the signs and wonder gift ceased. Now I'm not saying God can't heal people. God can do whatever He wants, right? We pray for healing. But I don't have the power and I don't know anyone who does. Do you, Brother Tony? To walk through the hospitals and heal people like Paul and the other apostles did. So that's what we mean. But Paul quickly followed that up and said, look, there's another more important evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in my ministry, and that is people are getting saved. What's a greater miracle? Extending someone's life a few years or having their eternal address changed from hell to heaven? The Holy Spirit must do that, and He gives the Lord credit for that. And then there's one more evidence, and that is thoroughness. He says, I have fully preached the gospel. And then he gave this geographical region in which he'd done that. I think we need to make sure that we 
do our job thoroughly before we move on. Now, Paul's not claiming that everyone in that region is a Christian. Okay, that's not what he means. The Lord woke me up exceptionally early this Sunday morning. And as I was praying, a friend of mine was placed on my heart, who's a pastor over on the east side of Dallas, First Baptist Church of Forney, Texas. And so I got my phone and I texted Brother Nathan and said, Nathan, praying for you boys on the east side to preach it hard today. And he was up too. And he texted right back and he said, oh, don't worry about us. We got it on lockdown over here. He said, there's hardly a lost person to be found in East Dallas. He was joking. You can laugh at that if you've ever been to East Dallas. No more than we've got it on lockdown on the west side. He, he knew what I knew, that there's lots of work left to be done. And we need prayer for one another. But Paul said, uh, I've preached the gospel fully everywhere. What do you mean by that? It means that what God has specifically called him to do, he felt the freedom to move on. And what that means in a practical sense is that you have taught everything God has commanded you to teach to everyone he's commanded to teach it to in every place he told you to go. And if you wonder when it's time to move on from your place of ministry, that's a good test. Have you taught everything, the whole counsel of God, had to everyone that God has told you to teach it to in every place he's told you to teach it? And until the Lord reveals that to you, I think you ought to stay where you are. And does that mean that Paul had shared the gospel with every single person? No. It meant that God had given Paul a different calling and passion. Paul was that rare breed of what we call pioneer missionary evangelists. And he reveals that passion and calling to them in verse 20. And that's our final and fourth point, a passion revealed. Look at verse 20. He says, And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Paul was a literalist when it came to prophecy. He believed that the gospel, as Jesus said, was going to go to the ends of the world, and he wanted to be the one to take it. God had put it in his heart to take the gospel to a specific geographical area that we're going to look at next week, and I'll go ahead and tell you what it is. It's the nation of Spain. And one of the reasons he wants to go to Rome is so they can help him get to Spain, where God is placed on his heart. And to Paul's mind, Spain was as far as you could possibly go. Now, did Paul make it to Spain? We don't know. Theologians are, are mixed about it. The Bible doesn't say whether he did or he didn't. But as I told the first group today, I don't know if Paul made it to Spain, but I know the gospel did. How do I know? Did you know that we've got two former missionary couples to Spain in this very room right now? And between the first two services, another man came up and said, my wife and I were saved in Spain. Whether Paul got to Spain or not, the gospel did, and it's still there. And there's a missionary couple from Spain that's going to spend their furlough in our missionary house across the street, and you'll get to know them. We have a church plant that we support every month financially in the nation of Spain. And so God fulfilled this dream of Paul and this passion that he had to take the gospel to Spain. Now, I'm out of time. Let me conclude by saying this. 
Your pastors preach boldly on some hard things and some difficult passages. But we don't ever want you to think we do that because we think lowly of you. We do that because we think highly of you. We know you want the truth and we know you're mature enough to handle it. And so we can spend year after year in difficult text. But we also know we can all do better. And also know we all forget. And so we have to come back week after week and remind us of what we already know. And we trust that when we are faithful to do that, God's going to give fruit. Those 55 people standing up here today, some of them saved and baptized recently, are evidence that the fact of the fact that God, through His Spirit, is still alive. And He's still working. And when He does something wonderful, we ought to celebrate it. The Bible says there's joy and celebration in heaven over one soul that repents. And we had many more than that to celebrate here today. But we also need to hold one another accountable. That when we celebrate good things, that He gets the glory and not us, right? When I was coaching football years ago, I had a wise old coach told me something. He said, Sanders, I think it was after my first victory. And there weren't many thereafter, but we had one. And he said to me, there's a reason that God made your arm the length it is so you can't pat yourself on the back too easily. That's right. Let's celebrate the good things God has done and give Him the glory and ask Him to do more in the future. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Father, that many of the things that Paul said about the church at Rome, I see here. These people are good people. They have not only imputed righteousness, but practical righteousness. Lord, we know we're not perfect, and we won't be till Jesus comes. But we want to be. We want to be everything that He wants us to be. And so, Lord, for that to happen, we need to be prayerful. We need to be students of the Word. We need to keep reminding ourselves over and again of basic truth. We need to forgive one another and confess our sins one to another. Father, we need to make room for others when you send them. So many of us have been here for years and we've been blessed to have our children raised here. And and Lord, if we're not careful, we'll close ourselves off and say, my four and no more. Lord, thank you for these new members that you've sent. New blood and new life and energy into our church. Lord, we pray you do it again over and over until Jesus comes. Father, we pray that we would not stop serving you until you tell us it's time thank you for this passion to reach unreached people that Paul had and Lord I've seen it in some of our people here Lord I pray you'd increase their tribe Lord I'm thinking about our teenagers in the balcony today so precious and dear so much potential Lord I pray very boldly today that you would give some of them this passion to go to the hard places and the unreached places with the gospel so that the great commission could be fulfilled Pray for their parents and grandparents, friends, that we'd support them, encourage them, pay for it. Father, I I pray in short that you would not let our lamp go out here. I pray, Lord, uh, when the time comes that the Lord Jesus could say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. Lord, may that be our ambition. 
and the order of the day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.